Hello everyone, you're back in the room, it's George and Steve here, and today we're going to be talking about something a little different. Um, uh, Steve, how do you say hello in Japanese? Konnichiwa, hajimamashite. Little clue for everyone. Um, we're going to be talking about Japan today, um, and the reason is, specifically we're going to kind of talk about some of our, this is, I'd say, the gateway drug to Japanese culture episode. Um, so if anyone is interested in or would like to get into certain aspects of Japanese art, film, music, books, etc., this is your one-stop shop. Um, and the reason we're talking about it is uh, both a personal and a, I'd say more global reason. Uh, I guess the more global reason is I think Japan is enjoying, just from my own observation, is enjoying a little bit of a sort of a cultural ascendancy at the moment in terms of interest. I think there's two major sporting events over next uh, to this year. There's the Rugby World Cup. Next year, there's the Olympics. So all eyes will be on Tokyo then. Um, seems to be a lot of interest in uh, the output culturally from Japan in terms of Netflix now has all the anime series there seems to be more people than ever who are familiar with a lot of those what seem to be very japanese anime series uh streaming services like crunchyroll exclusively doing those uh my little brother reads japanese uh comics online companies like nintendo very much having a whale of a time with the success of the switch and nintendo games doing very well so and there's lots of bbc programs more never seemingly to be exploring the world of Japan, the culture of Japan. Um, so yeah, um, that's the kind of global perspective on that. And on a personal perspective, me and my beloved co-host, George here, are going to be heading to the land of the rising sun uh, next month, aren't we, George? We certainly are, Steve. Um, we're heading there for a little trip. Um, I text George because I, I booked my big Asia trip um, that I'm doing for the last two months of the year. And I text George a few months ago and said, uh, I'm starting with Japan. I know you want to go. Uh, if you want to join, you know, there's an open invite. And I thought he'll never come, but throw it out there. Yeah. Um, and he texts back the same evening saying, sign me up, chum. Flights are booked. Flights are booked. That's um, backfired, isn't it? <laughs> so I thought, well, the old boys, the old boys do it um so it'll be george's first time and, I, and i've been a couple of times over the last uh, couple of years so um very much going to be holding his hand the whole way through um, holding his hand in yogi park and strolling through the lovely gardens together. is that the sort of service you have to pay for out there <laughs> yeah yeah um that's going to be my part-time job um <laughs> yeah so so we're going and and so we um we we sort of thought we'd you know we we're both interested in uh things like Japanese literature anyway, but we thought let's sort of let's sort of dive in and brush up a bit and and find a few cultural things we can enjoy in preparation for going uh Is that a good summary of what we're talking about George yeah, I think it is there's a couple of things actually i've I've just thought to mention briefly as well before we get into the actual like uh media cultural stuff was that um one of them that i'm really interested in over the last couple of years has been coffee and different approaches to coffee culture and the more i've investigated the more japan 
seems to be quite a big player in this that I wasn't really expecting to see. But a big brand, Hario, who make lots of uh, home brewing equipment and filters and things for yeah, making nice coffee, seems to be coming out of Japan. And I've been living in Scandinavia for six months and have really noticed an overlap in how they design things, how there's an emphasis on function and clean lines and simplicity. That's been a really nice thing to see, a really nice thing to see. So I'm interested in seeing how that also looks in situ because my expectation of somewhere like Tokyo is maximalism and craziness, but seeing the the stripped down functionality of things like that is kind of a juxtaposition that I wasn't expecting, but I'm intrigued to see. Uh, work the other thing with with that similar approach to design is menswear which um again was not a a a classic look that i was expecting to see from japanese brands but there seems to be a real overlap with classic 60s american aesthetics like the ivy league preppy look but japanese brands seem to have taken lots of those traditional american uh items like oxford shirts or denim you know classic denim jeans and have made them their own with an emphasis on really simple looks and cuts and high-end quality fabrics and um traditional approaches so yeah those are are just a couple of yeah on the spectrum of culture things that i'm intrigued into into discovering a bit more but i guess this is more of a talk about um yeah film and music and book yeah, it's it's interesting. Though it's interesting you say that, and maybe we'll we'll add to this episode when we're actually out there. It might be fun to do a do a dispatch from the place itself. But um, I'll be interested to hear your opinion because actually, to my untrained eye, I'd say walking the streets of Tokyo. I think I is it's the highest sort of in terms of average average level of fashion sense probably the best I've ever seen in any city in terms of the av- how fashionable the average person is. When you say fashionable, do you, do you mean people... Because <laughs> I'm aware that there's also a ton of like subset social groups in Japan where people might be dressing in a particularly outlandish way that is not yeah, the no, day-to-day I, I look. Mean, you mean the average I mean, guy in a suit or girl in a dress? I mean, kind of I mean day-to-day just dress like you're dressed to walk around a city, you know, just what, whatever outfit you've thrown on. The outfit scene, most people seem to... There, there's a lot of coordination, thought into each piece and, like, no one's going around in a slobby T-shirt and sweatpants. Do you know what I mean? There's, there's just a generally very high level of... Uh, it seems like people actually invest a lot in... Uh, their fashion and what they're wearing. Yeah. Um, so yeah, I'll be interested to see what you think of that. And yes, you are right. The 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 food and drink culture, I think as well. Like you're getting all these ramen shops pop up in London and and in Copenhagen. We went to one together that was very actually quite authentic feeling, and they had like the vending machines in there, which is a very Japanese thing. And there was just it just does seem that there's a lot of importing of like the food and drink culture in a way that. Yeah, it seems to be on the rise a bit at the moment. Uh, yes, so lots to chew on. Um, so where do you want to start? Do you want to start with some of the things, films we've been watching, uh, Japanese films? I feel like this is an area where some people have seen maybe one or two, but um, I'm sure a lot of people maybe have not seen any as well. So uh, where did you start with Japanese films in general? Oh, um, so I've kind of... Put, um, 
conscious that I don't want to say kind of too much more because I was doing that during the recording of our last episode and it drove me a bit insane. Um, I've got a list of films from Japan that I've seen recently. I think I've watched all of these this year. Prior to that, I don't think I've seen a ton of Japanese films, but lots of them would be, or, or my gateway into them would probably have been through Western directors applying a Japanese aesthetic or their clearly much greater knowledge of that culture. So obvious one would be something like Kill Bill. There's a big Japanese aesthetic and scenes in that that sort of wet, wet my whistle for... Uh, for investigating more and I've never and this is where you and I will differ probably quite a lot never had a big interest in the anime stuff haven't watched a ton of it and have now maybe seen three or four of the Studio Ghibli films and maybe one or two others beyond that my awareness of film has been through Kurosawa's stuff and it's always it's always being like looming large on a list of films I must see, but I've never really dipped into them until maybe a couple of years ago. So I think Rashomon was the first great quote-unquote Japanese film that I saw um, and read the short story collection of two to kind of set it again, uh, to contextualise it. But um, yeah, otherwise maybe video game would be an area that got me into Japanese aesthetics, but I've... I think mentioned on this podcast before that video games have fallen by the wayside for my interest. So yeah, not, a, not a huge grounding, but it's, it's starting to take hold for me. Um, yeah. So was that, was, was something like, like something more classic, like Rashomon, one of the first sort of, you know, is that the first time you sort of watch film by a Japanese director? I think if I'm, a, yeah, that I'm aware of, I think it probably is. Um, and that, that was in a film class with a very uh, specific agenda to be watching a Japanese film. How does it seem Japanese? What's different with this versus Western made films and that kind of thing. So that was a, a slightly less organic experience, I suppose, but maybe coming to it from a kind of critical outlook gave me the tools to understand what was happening with them a bit more than I would have done if I just flicked it on on the TV and sat down and watched it, you know? Yeah, and, and Rashomon's interesting because it's actually, it's actually, there's a very modern storytelling, what you'd associate with kind of quite a modern storytelling device in it where the same story of a, a bandit sort of accosting a samurai and his, uh, his bride, is it? Or concubine? Yeah, yeah. Sure. But um, uh, yeah, it's sort of an incident happens where a bandit you know, attempts to steal from these two. And there's three different, three or four different perspectives told on the same story. And each has a different variation, uh, kind of leaving the viewer to decide what the completely accurate one is, if there is one at all. But it's, uh, yeah, it was a very interesting film. I only saw it for the first time recently, but I, I, uh, I thought it was very interesting. And yeah, I enjoyed it a lot. Um, but uh, yeah, I, I, my, my gateway in was, yeah, so I, I definitely was very steeped in video games as a kid. And obviously it all filters in unconsciously through video games in certain ways where especially many of the old Nintendo ones were just, you know, you, you didn't know it when you were younger, but they were very steeped in certain Japanese sort of tones and yeah. sometimes aesthetics and things like that. And uh, But then I think... When I was younger, the program Dragon Ball Z became very popular. 
it sort of it sort of filtered onto Cartoon Network, and suddenly Cartoon Network had a few animes on it. It had Dragon Ball Z, had one called Tenchi Muyo, which was uh, different, and then it had one called Gundam, which was one of them like big mech robot fighter things. But uh, I found Gundam kind of boring. Uh, Tenchi was kind of more domestic and interesting. It was like sort of a young guy who's he he fought people, but he was also uh, loved by about six different women. <laughs> and it was sort of it's what they've there's a subgenre of anime called harem anime, and it's often about handsome young men who yeah, basically there, there's like several different women in love with them, and it's like. I don't know, in this weird setup, they all sort of live together. Uh, <laughs> it, was, it was quite an interesting uh, show. It's quite popular. But, uh, but yeah, Dragon Ball was like huge. And that was like big fighting show, uh, what they call um, a shonen jump manga, which is, uh, yeah, there's, there's, there's often lots of fighting. It's seen as very sort of, I don't know, tries to appeal to a male demographic. Um, but yeah, that that was a big gateway. And then the film, as I got to a teenager, Battle Royale. Um, I remember being told about this film that was, was had such a cool premise and it was these school kids who were on an island and had to uh, fight to the death as some kind of dystopian program. And obviously, weirdly enough, that is the plot to The Hunger Games. And yet Suzanne Collins said she wasn't inspired by Battle Royale and didn't see it when she wrote the hunger game so i don't i shrug that i don't know but it seems quite bizarre to me um but yeah battle royale was a yeah that was a big deal and it had this guy in it takeshi kitano who i found out was sort of this legend in japan who had uh, directed lots of films um yeah so, so that's that an interesting one to flag up because i only saw that this year and um yeah, I'd seen and read The Hunger Games before that, but no, it predates it. Um, but it fits in with quite a lot of other, you know, Marathon Man, or there's plenty of films that have a, a sort of death death race or, you know, gladiatorial combat to Last Man Standing kind of approach. But locked on an island, young people, there's some serious overlap with Hunger Games for sure. Yeah, and Takeshi Kitano, who's the star of that, and the direct, uh, um, uh, not the director of that film, but a Japanese film director, was also the uh, star of the eponymous show Takeshi's Castle. Okay. Uh, weirdly enough, he would just appear at the end of the show as one of the people that battled to Takeshi's Castle. But he's like this big actor in Japan and stuff. But so I don't know why he was on that show. That was like sort of game show, a Japanese game show. Um, yeah, which is funny. But uh, yeah, so I think Battle Royale holds up. It was released in about two thousand, but it actually it holds up pretty well. I'd say I really enjoyed it watching it yeah. this year. It didn't feel particularly dated. No, no, it's still well worth looking at as a as a kind of gateway drug for Japanese films. It's a real worth like thrill a minute as well it's very full-on and intense it doesn't let off at any point it's well worth yeah, watching it starts very quickly um whereas steve i would say that uh, another film i wanted to bring up if i'm talking about all the ones i've watched this year that is the absolute opposite of that in terms of its pacing how it's I know directed i know you do uh, is tokyo story another one of those films that looms very large on lists of best best ever from any nation really uh Made a fantastic film, maybe this one of the slowest films I've ever seen. <laughs> the, the plot being about 
a young the you know the children and siblings of a family kind of forget about and have little time for their parents who come to visit and the the many questions about honor and responsibility and family obligations and um requirements but filmed in such a static way i think we both counted it and the camera moves i think it moves twice and once is deliberate once is a, a bit of a uh, an accident if anything it's all static shots it's black and white it's all filmed from very low angles very long takes all about the dialogue which we're getting in translation so i don't know how much of the the full experience we get but a beautifully shot film but really interesting for that juxtaposition of the young japanese approach and the kind of crazy saturation of speed and color and intensity versus yeah melancholic reflections on an older generation and a lifestyle passing and past i think yeah and the um the the themes feel very contemporary still even though it's not old fashioned film but it yeah it was um the director Ozu, who is, you know, one of the sort of titans of Japanese film, along with someone like Kurosawa. Um, and he, uh, yeah, he has this extremely, like, stripped-down, pared-back style where apparently a lot of his films are like this. It's often, like, the camera's doing as little work as possible. And, and the camera is often propped at the seating level yeah. of... Uh, uh you know on the tatami mat itself where the characters would be seated so it's like the camera's quite low down and uh yeah it it was it's pretty heartbreaking film it's pretty um it's not it's not it's not engineering sort of it's very real it's not sort of tugging um you know sort of uh what's the word it's not manipulating your emotions but the whole scenario is just extremely sad and very real of you know these uh this one generation sort of you know one generation sort of struggling to survive in modern day city and then the older generation are kind of not yeah kind of displaced not sure and i think it was reflecting sort of anxieties at the time when japan was adopting a lot of western cultural values and uh sort of industrializing very quickly and uh yeah i think it was that sort of old rural japan versus the new city sort of thing um but yeah yeah very beautiful film uh but yeah you kind of need to it, yeah in terms of as a gateway drug it's like you need to be ready to just really sink in and watch the film and relax and not not expect you're gonna just turn it on <laughs> and have something blast at you it's just yeah you've got to kind of be prepared to like i'm gonna set aside a few hours sit and just let this film kind of wash over me um yeah, but uh, but yeah, I thought it was fantastic. Um, For sure. I, well, so I'll, I'll rattle through my other couple now then because they all follow on in a way. The uh, piece of anime I've watched this year, yeah, I could count on maybe two hands, probably one, the anime I've seen, but this was Grave of the Fireflies, which is brutally depressing, beautifully drawn, and I suppose fits a similar period of Japanese history and culture. Tokyo Story talks about uh, one of the sons of the family died during the war. It's maybe set 10 years after, five, 10 years after the end of the Second World War. And Grave of the Fireflies is set during the last days before, before and just after, I suppose, the atom bomb um, and is a true story 
based on the experiences of the, I guess, the director. I don't know if he's the main storyboard artist or whoever he is, but about uh, the relationship between a, a brother and sister as they try and cope and survive um, in the last days of the war. And it is very powerful, very affecting, very short and effective as well. I think it's only about 80 minutes long. Uh, and that, interestingly, as we talked about with Rashomon as well, uses a fairly modern, I, I guess it's a, it's a piece of anime from the 80s based on a book he wrote in the 60s, but it uses a, a time-shifting device to explain what's happening. There's flashbacks and flash-forwards, and that certainly adds to the gravitas of the film. Um, that was a really powerful piece of cinema, for sure. Yeah, that film... Um... I found it incredibly, I watched it, I think I was late teenager maybe, and it was incredibly heart-wrenching and probably the most affecting thing I've ever seen in terms of showing the intimate effects of the dropping of the atom bomb. I don't think I've, I've seen anything that was sort of so uh, visceral in terms of, yeah, how it showed the human cost of that uh, event. And, that, and uh, I think that film was very, uh, very big when it came out at the time. Um, it's got the, uh, I, I would say, maybe the slightly unfair advantage of being able to draw the most kind of sweet and innocent characters with big emotion-filled eyes that is something you could, you could never get a real person to do. Yeah, um, yeah, and it's just, it's just their heartbreaking struggle to survive the after-effects of that happening, basically, and tearing their family apart. And uh, that film is by the great studio Ghibli company or Ghibli in Japan as it's known uh so I'll call it that from now on but uh they're kind of the premier animation studio and there's a hell of a lot of animation that comes out of Japan uh but Ghibli's kind of the high watermark in terms of a lot of their films uh are very beloved particularly of uh their director Hayao Miyazaki uh who has stopped making films now but he directed uh, a film I'll come on to as the next on our list, uh, which is probably, I think it's the highest grossing Japanese film ever in Japan, um, which is Spirited Away. And there's a lot to choose from with Miyazaki. I think, I think that alongside with his other um, kind of masterpiece uh, probably my neighbor Totoro, which uh, is where the big the big cat that is the emblem of the studio of Studio Ghibli comes from. You can kind of see it everywhere uh, in Japan. This big cat uh, figure, but Spirited Away was kind of the one that, in some ways, it, it became extremely popular in the West in the early two thousands and exposed a lot of people of our generation to the films of Studio Ghibli because um, uh, they all started coming out on DVD shortly after that, even the older ones. And Spirited Away is a story of a girl called Chihiro who is moving with her family. And it's kind of this very human story of just a child dealing with what is a big upheaval in her life, which is obviously moving away from all her friends and changing city. And her and her parents stumble across this old theme park and she gets separated from them and then they get turned into pigs and all these spirits come out and she arrives at this ancient Edo period Japanese bathhouse uh, amongst all these spirits where she starts working 
And it's about her quest to find her way back uh, to her home and to the real world, essentially. It's, uh, it's extremely, it's just, the animation is fantastic. Uh, it's full of dozens of strange and fascinating characters. It's, it's a real kind of enchanting adventure. When you watch uh, these for the first time, were you watching them with the Japanese voices and subtitles or were you watching the dubbed versions? Yeah, I did listen to the dubbed versions because those are the ones that came out on DVD at the time. And uh, some of them had very big actors on, like How's Moving Castle had Christian Bale on it. Um, and there were quite big actors on them. But uh, yeah, Spirited Away was kind of the the gateway drug for Studio Ghibli films, which, were, which I subsequently realized were a huge deal in Japan. And uh See, there's kind of so many different kinds of anime and it's really overwhelming because there is just, especially when you actually go to Japan, it feels like there are, you go to the, the video or comic book shops they have still of, of the anime and there's just hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of comics, series that will go on for hundreds of books and you've never heard of them, hmm. obviously, and just you think... I cannot believe there's series that are this big that are just, I have no conception of what they are. They've never even, you know, been brought over to the West really. And uh, yeah, but, but, but Studio Ghibli, the films like particularly Spirited Away, My Neighbor Totoro, um, I think something like uh, Howl's Moving Castle is a very lovely film. That's based on a, a novel by a, a Welsh author, um, hmm. Diane Wynne-Jones, uh, interestingly enough. But right. Hayao Miyazaki had a very, has a very kind of, you know, a lot of the films are about, they, they reflect certain parts of the Japanese psyche or the Shinto religion, but they're very human stories about childhood and growing up and coming of age. And they're very like human themes often mixed in with a lot of kind of peppered with Japanese cultural and spiritual themes as well. So they're, they're just a very good way to kind of get into the psyche in that way, I think. Um, mm. And a lot of them have a lot of an obsession with, you know, uh, war and its effects on people and, yeah. you know, the, the post-war world of Japanese society. Um, yeah, in terms of, I mean, do you want to flick over to anime itself? Because you said it's not your strong point, George, but I can, I can breeze through yeah blast blast away with i had the only other film japanese film i've seen this year was a film i think i've talked about on the previous podcast and that's seven samurai which is masterful and one of the best definitely one of the best films i've seen this year another long film but it it flies it's really quick really fast paced uh, and is clearly the precursor for a ton of western action films from the magnificent seven so obviously through to something like star wars uh and I'm sure any film that involves assembling a group of heroes to accomplish a task owes a, owes a big debt to Seven Samurai, but gripping, really fast paced, super well filmed, super well acted. So I'd definitely recommend that to anyone. Yeah, I've yet to see that and it's an absolute classic, I'm told. So I'm, I'm looking forward to it. Um, and um, yes, to, the, uh, to anime. So I think uh, it's very... I found that people's taste in anime can be very idiosyncratic and, you know, a lot of it does initially put off people. And I think sometimes large swathes of it will put anyone off because it's made for so many different kinds of people. And, and so there's, there's huge amounts of, like any medium, there's huge amounts of junk, huge amounts of just kind of 
mediocre thing just just you know there's a lot of there's a lot to wade through uh to kind of find the real gems um mm. because there's just so much of it but um the ones that uh I think I so film wise, the one I'll rec- I'd recommend is one that was actually just under Spirited Away in terms of highest grossing, but it's well worth watching. Uh, I watched it this year. It's called Your Name, and uh, it's uh, not by Studio Ghibli, but it's uh, a really beautiful love story. Uh, just about it's about two characters who almost in Freaky Friday style uh, keep waking up in each other's bodies. Uh, okay, is that one quite recent? Yeah, I think it's 2016. Yeah. So it's, uh, but it's kind of become quite beloved and it's one that translates very well to a Western audience. So if you, if you kind of don't know where to start and want something that um, would just wet your whistle in that way, uh, your name is very good for that. Um, uh, and uh, yeah, it's really charming and, and it captures modern Japanese life very well, actually, because a lot of it's set in modern, well, it's set in contemporary Tokyo and contemporary rural Japan. Um, uh, the other ones, in terms of classic anime, so this is one that um, any anime fan would know that has kind of been lauded as one of the great classics of the genre, which is Cowboy Bebop. And Cowboy Bebop is a story, a series of adventures of a group of bounty hunters who come together and sort of have these wild and wonderful adventures in space. It's kind of got the most, it really mixes up its theme and music. Like each one is often based on a musical style, each episode. And there's ones that are like blues, ones more jazz, ones like funk or samba. That's and cool. It's, it's very influenced, um, yeah, very heavily influenced by a lot of Western things, actually. Um, so it's kind of this fusion of a lot of, yeah, Western aesthetics with Japanese. But it's, it's one you can dip into because there is a, there is an overarching story, but actually lots of the episodes kind of stand on their own as singular adventures. And it's made by a guy called Shinichiro Watanabe. And he's, yeah, his stuff is really influenced by like Westerns, noir, there's a lot of ennui in it. It's, it's lots of kind of traveling around space, kind of, yeah, having these adventures, but it's kind of a sense of all the characters are a bit broken and a bit kind of have their own sort of tragic backstories. Um, but yeah, that's... Uh, that one's very cool. And he did another one called Samurai Shampoo, which is the same kind of, it's, it's actually set in uh, an older world of, you know, the world of samurais in the sort of Edo period, Tokyo. But it's, uh, it's actually got like lots of modern, like it's got like hip hop music and things like that in it. Okay. Um, so it's kind of an interesting fusion as well. Um, are these still going now or are they, they've been- no. And the reason those ones are kind of rec- I recommend is because they don't have this kind of intimidating 150 episodes. Yeah, they, okay. They're ones you can watch the complete series of. Um, yeah, and kind of just, you know, you watch like the 20 episodes. Are they plotted throughout or are they all con- self-contained? Uh, Samurai Shampoo is plotted throughout, yeah. Um, yeah, Samurai Shampoo is plotted throughout and Cowboy Bebop like has an overarching story. Okay. Uh, but they, yeah, they, that Cowboy Bebop, you can dip into a bit more. Yeah. Um, oh, actually a slight correct. Yeah, yeah. That is set in the Edo period. I don't know if Edo is the word for Tokyo. I might've been wrong on that, I think. <laughs> um, but 
Um, but yes, the Edo is a distinct period. Oh no, yeah, former name of Tokyo. There you go. Yeah, I got it right. Um, yeah, so that one's kind of more old style. Um, and then uh, for a modern one, this is one everyone sort of talks about in anime circles, but it is, I, I do think it is really, really good. If you want like, if you want really engaging, like almost, you know, like a binge watchable show like Game of thrones S, like you get yeah. really into the plot. I think Death Note is the one where you, most people who don't really watch anime, you could watch Death Note and just get completely in and binge it all. Mm. And do, it's like, I don't know, 25, 30 episodes. Are they um, short cartoon episodes? Or yeah, like, like 25 minute episodes. Yeah. Uh, Death Note is just the story of a cop and a criminal chasing each other. Uh, a teenager who sort of finds a book that allows him to from the from the gods of death and it just it allows him to write anyone's name in it and determine if they're going to die or live and a detective who's sort of the greatest detective in the world uh is tasked with trying to bring him down and find out who he is and obviously the detective has to not reveal his name because his name could be written in the death note and he'd be killed at any time. Interesting. So, uh, it's kind of a cat and mouse game between two geniuses trying to outwit each other. But it's it's just extremely yeah. Once you're in, you just kind of keep going and going. Um, yeah, uh, and it's got a really good finale. So yeah, I, uh, I I recommend that if you watch if you watch. The, is that one of the ones that's now available? Is that on Netflix? Yeah, that's on Netflix. Avoid. Avoid like the plague, the appalling American film of it. <laughs> you, if you find something on Netflix and it's American, you think oh, I'll watch this version. Just just turn it off and, and never put it on again. It is <laughs> it's awful beyond that approach. And I feel uh, and and I heard there's a Japanese film of it that's okay, a live action one. But the anime is is where it's at. So uh, okay, yeah, I mean. Yeah, I mean, the American one disturbs me in that people will think that's what Death Note is. And it's, uh, yeah, it's just an extremely poor film. Okay, um, noted. Uh, yeah, so um, that's probably enough anime to get anyone. I think one, one other that I have seen that maybe I thought you would have mentioned that a lot of people will have heard of if they haven't seen it is Akira. Yes. Which I have seen and I did enjoy it, but it felt like, an extended period of people shouting the name Akira or <laughs> they're just shouting each other's names in peril a lot. There, there didn't seem to be too much else going on. Uh, yeah, I mean, I, I do have a deep love for Akira, but it's quite, uh, it's very sci-fi and it's very, yeah. it's, you can see it inspired tons of cyberpunk anime. You can tell it inspired the Matrix, um, it's a huge amount of people have taken a lot from the aesthetic of Akira, that modern, futuristic Tokyo look. Um, yeah. Kind of a, yeah. Um, but yeah, um, yeah. It's uh, it's but it's a it's kind of deep one where you feel quite confused by the end. There's uh, definite nods to coping with the post atom bomb world and that kind of recovery as well. That's clearly a theme through that through that plot i think um as i'm sure it is in lots of yeah lots of modern facing japanese works
do you want to talk about some Japanese literature we've read? I'd bloody love to. Let's do it. So my first encounter with Japanese literature was, I think, probably the work of Haruki Murakami. Snap. Uh, yes, and I think you were the first, first one, George, to thrust a Murakami book in my little mitts. Oh, is uh, that true? I, d- I didn't remember that. I thought that, um, thought that was an independent discovery. No, you gave me a copy of Norwegian Wood. Ah, so I think if, you've, if you're a loyal listener who has listened to our, our slightly earlier episode about um, tips and tricks, I guess, for, for better reading, one of mine was to pick the brains of local booksellers because they know their stuff. Uh, the Waterstones branch that I worked in had a, a serious Murakami acolyte who read very little else and he turned me on to them and it's something I would never have this well. I don't think I would have discovered independently for a for a while longer. So, um, yeah, I owe I owe that recommendation to him for sure. And what would you say? You know, describe because Murakami is quite a titan now of contemporary Japanese literature. What would you explain? What makes him a phenomenon? That's, that's a big question. He's he's consistently put forward for the Nobel. Um, he's definitely one of the names always up in the air for that prize, which is an imp- impressive spot to be in. Um, I would say he's possibly overrepresented for his for the quality of his work, maybe. I'm a big fan of it, but I think some of it feels quite juvenile, having now read, I'd say, 90% of the things he's published. Some of them don't hold up, or for a Western reader, don't talk about themes that it's very easy to understand unless you are part of the... Japanese cultural world which is my shortcoming not his of course um, but sometimes they can be a little bit difficult to access the deeper meanings beyond what's happening on the surface and what's happening on the surface is often a bit bizarre but Norwegian Wood's a really good entry point for his stuff because it's probably the most straight um, the least uh, mysterious or mystical or magic realism or off the wall of his books it's essentially a, a relationship between three people university age people in the 60s in japan i feel like he really crowbarred the title of norwegian wood on as well because it's just a tiny framing device at the start and end of the book right about hearing that beatles song doesn't i don't think it crops up anywhere else in the novel but um that's by the by i guess that really helped it pick up a western readership um Yeah, his novels often have a lot of lonely protagonists spending a lot of time on their own, cooking and listening to jazz. There's a kind of Murakami bingo, isn't there, where, you know, Full House would be someone cooking spaghetti, a talking cat, jazz, lonely man, um, mysterious, sexy, Japanese, weird girl, uh, a well. There's always a well for someone to fall into. Um, But yeah, his, his, his good stuff is excellent. And um, yeah, definitely the the Japanese author with the biggest presence in the West over the last 30 years. Yeah, I think he translates well and he writes in a very accessible way. And I think if you want to make a start on Murakami, I think the best bet is to go for Norwegian Wood or Wild Sheep Chase. Um, And if if you want to go for the much more surrealist stuff, uh, there's a short story collection he has called The Elephant Vanishes, which I highly recommend. 
And that has much more of his wild imagination sort of firing on all cylinders and sometimes quite scary, strange stories. No, I, I have that on my two-read pile to actually take with us to Japan. It's one of, one of the few of his I've not read, but there was a film last year by, oh, I think, a Korean director um, adapted a, a Murakami short story, and the film is called Burning, and it's super well-reviewed. I've yet to see it, but want to. And I think that's adapted from a short story from that collection with a slightly similar name. Um, so that's also on my to-watch list before we travel. But uh, I've, I would agree with those as good starting points. The other, the other two of his I've got written down as good start, well, starting points definitely are Kafka on the Shore, which was the weirdest one I've enjoyed, and Wind Up Bird Chronicle, but that's, that's quite a big undertaking. Um, and it loses its way in parts, I think, but it also has some of the most striking sections. A character called Boris the Man Skinner really stuck with me. Um, Very good. I haven't read Kafka on the ship. Definitely check that one out. There's also one called Sputnik Sweetheart, which is quite a short one. And lots of this is set in Europe, in, well, I think on some Greek islands, maybe, maybe Spanish islands, not 100%, but... Um, interesting to see his take on a, a different world because well, a different culture because most of his work is very japan centric um and then a curveball from him that i didn't love with all my heart but it was a very interesting thing to read and that was his non-fiction account of the sarin gas underground attacks and that's called underground and he made a point of interviewing the kind of average man and woman caught in that scenario the the journey they were on and the the mundanities of their life and how that was affected by such a an out of the normal event with such important ramifications and the way he did it was yeah very affecting through its repetition um but it, it speaks about how yeah the extreme can affect the individual in a way that maybe something like grave of the fireflies did as well but with a with a more direct traceability to a human event of more recent memory. So also worth checking out to see him write in a way that is stripped of all its, yeah, mysterious magical realism. And what's that one called? Underground. Um, before we uh, hop off Murakami, for our more athletically inclined uh, readers out there, um, I did enjoy his account, uh, his, his book, What I Talk About When I Talk About Running. Um, have you read that one, George? I have, yeah. It's uh, well, as as someone who is a runner, and you did a marathon with me, obviously. Um, I I sort of keep up the running habit, though not quite as long as long distances. But it's something that is just one of those things. Sometimes you need to read someone who just inspires you to realize you can push a bit further. Because Murakami sort of runs several runs multiple miles every day, and it just just Multiple when marathons I, a year as well, right? He does some big, big runs still, and he must be in his mid-60s. Yeah, and he talks about how that helps and affects his writing and how it's part of the same kind of rhythm and routine as his writing. He, he has a very kind of... He's a very routine-centric person in, in his productivity. And, uh, yeah, it just sometimes inspires me to think, well, actually, I could go out and run five miles today uh, if I push myself. So that was a kind of inspiring book for that. Um, yeah, and so let's go to something a bit older uh, now. 
uh, a book I read very recently. It was published in 1914, and I think it's a sort of classic, uh, and it's called Kokoro uh, by the author Natsume Sosuke. Um, and it, uh, it trans it, it, its translation is really readable, so it's very accessible, even though it was written, you know, quite a while ago. Um, and it's about a man who sort of befriends an older gentleman who he calls Sensei, and he sort of admires things about him and the way he thinks. And so he, the Sensei is often just kind of, you know, he he kind of pesters the Sensei to sort of be a kind of mentor to him and. He, he learns things from him, but the sensei is also kind of world-weary as well and cynical. Uh, and uh, it's kind of the first half is all the young man, and then the second half is like a letter from the sensei almost explaining his sort of tragic, some of the tragic things that happened in his life that okay. are why, he, why, why he's the way he is. And uh, I found the first half more engaging, um, but the chapters are super short and uh, re- so it's really readable. Um, you can really sort of bite through it pretty quickly. And uh, yeah, it's just a, it's a great meditation on a lot of big themes, death, suicide, uh, what you should and shouldn't learn from your elders and um yeah well worth a look and the the other one i read recently was a short novella called a cat a man and two women and that is by an author called junichiro tanizaki and that is about a guy who leaves his wife for a much younger woman and they have this cat that he absolutely adores that he got with his first wife and uh, his first wife says, basically, can I have the cat? And it's kind of him struggling to part with it and his younger wife almost being sort of jealous and put out by his weird adoration of this cat and, uh, and his sort of wrestling with his decision to give it back to his former wife. Um, and it's, yeah, it's a very well, it's really well written. Uh, yeah, kind of beautifully written, actually, and uh, sort of a very contemporary, pretty fresh feeling sort of mm. short novella i've definitely uh, seen that so on, worth picking on tables in a couple of london bookshops and there's something about it maybe the title is just a little bit too twee for me <laughs> to have picked up but um that endorsement yeah. might get me past that i i know what you mean and it's it's simple the whole thing is simple but it's i think it's because it's really short it's sort of you know it's not like okay it's going to be 300 pages of this sort of domestic yeah. Yeah, very domestic twee plot. Um, yeah, but I, I do know what you mean. Yeah, I've I've engaged with a couple of older classics from a similar period to the the earlier one that you just mentioned that I would just mention briefly here. Um, the Dancing Girl of Izu or Itsu and The Lake, both by Yasunari Kawabata, who was the first Japanese Nobel Prize or Nobel laureate. Um, not that that's the be all and end all of anything, Steve, but Lord knows it crops up. Um, <laughs> and I think he, his receipt of that may have had a knock on effect for the uh, causes of the subsequent suicide of Yukio Mishima, another classic Japanese author that um, is very significant. But the, before we get on to him, the Kawabata, the books are, I would say, similar to Rashomon and that kind of story an earlier period of a differently mannered Japan with um, historical and familial deference being 
super important aspects of the culture, but very measured, well-written, well-translated, um, tranquil short stories with undercurrents of, of slightly bigger issues, but certainly worth investigating for, um, again, something we talked about before, almost seeking out more contemporary stuff to see the significance of older texts. That's someone that I've been able to understand a bit better, having read things like Murakami and even Mishima, who came a lot later. Um, but yeah, Mishima is someone we've, we've talked about quite a bit on here, I think. I've mentioned several times The Sailor Who Fell From Grace With The Sea, a uh, fantastic, short, dark, gothic, um, brutal little novel about some evil children. I imagine the Battle Royale director had uh, had some influences taken or took some influences from this for sure. Uh, his others that I've read usually have a dark, sinister streak and disaffected, male, isolated, uh, troubled characters, um, but certainly well worth investigating, as is his personal story, which we've discussed before, but is a very interesting uh, aspect of his work that became harder and harder for him to separate from his writing, I think, and his ambitions started to meld with his own life to fairly devastating consequences. Yeah, the um, the only thing I've read by Mishima but I loved was the Death in Midsummer short story collection. Yeah. Um, and uh, two particular stories really stood out. I mean, I mean the, the title story is very good. The Death in Midsummer itself is is very affecting story. And uh, there's one called The Priest of Shiga Temple and His Love. And it's kind of a priest who ends up sort of losing what you know what he sees as some of his virtue by falling in love with this imperial concubine that like he just glances her and kind of completely loses his sort of stoicism and his mm. grip on his chastity and uh and that was really good and uh and then there's one called patriotism which you and i have talked about about a pre uh, a, a, a I think it's a general, a general and his wife who commit ritual suicide or seppaku as it's known in Japan. And it's, it made me actually, I, I had to put the book down because yeah, uh, I found it, it it's, it's such, you know, it's a visceral description of someone killing themselves with a sword and something about it is so, I don't know if it's, it's not like grotesquely gruesome. I guess it kind of is, but it's, it's so vivid, the description of it. It made me feel a bit lightheaded and just deeply uncomfortable. And For I sure. Kind of, and it's, I think yeah. it's on top of that, the quite mannered prose and the calm ritual way that he describes the process that he's going through. And then on top of that, knowing that this is in many ways the grisly end that also met the author is, makes it a very powerful piece to read after the fact. Yeah. Yeah, and, and you know, sometimes he's also capable of being like some of his stories quite funny as well. Some of the dialogue and yeah, uh, some of the character. So, yeah, um, but yeah, a, those are some Japanese novelist. If I could just mention one that I would almost encourage people to avoid, if that's if that's a, an okay thing to do. But someone that is also always on the shelves in western bookstores for being a, a great modern japanese novelist and the stuff i've read of hers it has really not done it for me is banana yoshimoto um and I, I just found them very yeah very hard to engage with not particularly gripping or interesting 
fairly mundane, um, but maybe people have had better experiences with that, with the work of the same author. So if so, let me know. But I've read Amrita and I, I really struggled with it. Right. No, I haven't, I haven't read any of her. Um, but uh, Word of I'll warning. to your expertise. <laughs> but maybe I'll read it and love it. So yeah, I'm try it. Um, yeah, well, that gives that's a good smorgasbord of Japanese literature, I guess. I'm sure that you know. I'm sure we're scratching the surface in terms of we're talking about the very famous authors. And yeah, sure translated <laughs> for a Western audience through the 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 mind of a publisher seeing an opportunity to publish. So yes, I'm well aware that the stuff we've engaged with has almost been pre-selected for us at a level before we've engaged with it. Um, yeah, but uh, but definitely not a bad place at all to start uh, for anyone looking to jump in. Um, so, uh, what at what time we come out to, George? I couldn't tell you, Steve, because the recording this episode has been an absolute technical disaster. Not that the listener will be able to realise that after your slick edit job. <laughs> um, well, let's just talk about if um, just just in terms of sort of cultural stuff in japan obviously we are not cultural experts on japan um but uh how is uh when you read stuff or watch stuff from you know some of the cultural output do you feel there do you feel there are distinctive things that are do you feel it's the same things we get in western literature and stuff just explored in a different culture do you feel there are other emphases on different things um you know just your kind of hot take on on that do you do you notice a distinct sort of flavor that's different when you're like reading a Japanese book or watching a film? Yes, definitely. I think there are issues that are more important for the wrestling of in, in the minds of the authors from those countries, at least in the novels that I've read, there is, yeah, of course, an engagement with the sort of ending point of the second world war and how that shaped a, a country steeped in honor and how their economy changed so drastically in the time preceding that, uh, preceding and um, following on from that. So, yeah, that, those are issues that obviously, if you grow up in a different country on the on a different sort of side of that event, then you won't have those as formative things to wrestle with. Um, yeah, British fiction has a, a lot of holdups about our class system. The Japanese uh, system is similar but also very different so there's there's important things to wrestle with there the the, i guess ostensible freedom of american culture or the the freedom that american culture tries to present in its writings and film doesn't come across in the same way in the japanese stuff i've engaged with so there's maybe more constraint um and there's more of a sense of being an island nation and also a large population in a small space. I think that comes across in a lot of the cultural um, media that I've engaged with, but also like we were talking before we got onto the media with great design and functional design and those things, they, they come across in the ingenuity of modern design in Japan. Uh, all of that stuff really permeates in ways that it doesn't if you engage with British, Spanish, French literature, because those countries come with different um, different baggages, I suppose. Yeah, it's it's always interesting to see how you know the art in a culture tries to wrestle with, like you said, the English culture often wrestles between a sort of 
a more sort of stuffy staid victorianism mixed with like you know the modern world and you know the differences now and and i think you know japan has this strange tension constantly going on of uh a, a looking back conservatism mixed with this extremely more you know this much more outlandish expressive colorful strange aesthetic that you see embodied all over the place in things like tokyo and the very future looking uh just very sort of unrestrained um and it's interesting to watch those two tensions sort of constantly at play in you know even if it's the anime if it's the films uh literature 100 percent you know i guess art is about i think wh jordan had that quote about art being clear thinking about mixed emotions i think it was something like mm-hmm. that but i often find that um yeah in art you see you see cultures wrestling with their contradictions in and that's kind of the place where you see them the most vividly and, and wrestling with different narratives and and yeah the, i think the post-war is just a huge part of uh you know the the japanese psyche in terms of what what comes after the experience of an event like that and how does it forge an identity separate and i guess you are right as well like unlike being quite a closed culture in that way like when you walk around japan it's like unlike london or new york or something you don't see french restaurants italian restaurants Mm. spanish restaurants it's not you know, where, whereas that's a very normal thing in a big city like London or Paris or New York. What on earth but, am I going to eat when we get there? <laughs> you're going to eat a lot of mochi dumplings. <laughs> um, yeah, and, and you feel, walk around Tokyo and it feels 100% extremely Japanese all the time. And it's, it's just interesting how, um, yeah, in, in some ways their art also has that where it, it kind of, I don't know, is somewhat more is looking towards itself more. It's not, not as, um, you know, America has this immigrant history and lots of his art reflects this sort of, what is the American identity? Cause it's a strange melting pot, but yeah. I, Even I as basic, right. As the Amer- a lot of American culture is like looking out to the open road and conquering the frontier and being free and heading West. If you live on a small Island nation with lots of mountains and the geographic impossibility of doing that, you're going to be more inward looking, aren't you? Yeah, yeah, that's right. And uh yeah, and uh and it's just it's just fascinating the when you obviously it's it's a cliche, but it's it's you know pretty accurate that the Japanese character is one of a lot of restraint and a lot of politeness and you meet people and they, they're not super expressive about their emotions at the time. But Thank and God yet in that. the <laughs> which you'll be at home you'll be completely at home George um, up. yeah Elizabeth won't be bugging you to express yourself more uh, and uh, yeah you know you get yeah, in the art you can sometimes you see in Japanese stuff stuff you see in no other culture like the most you know just strange extreme like one staple of anime is massive melodrama like lots of anime is steeped in sort of over expression of anger or emotional sadness and kind of, you know, it's like almost drowning in it a bit. And obviously Japan, Japan is known for having some extremely bizarre things come out of it uh, culturally. So it's just, it's just interesting how whatever goes through that conservative filter can come out in 
the actual cultural stuff in really definitely it's something else that um i think fits that bill to some degree that touches on just a couple of other things i want to mention is being at the forefront of so much technical innovation that obviously gives your culture a different opportunity to develop in ways that other countries that maybe have to receive those technical innovations further down the line don't have the opportunity to be at the forefront of and for music i've noticed as i've tried to delve into more japanese music um kind of at the forefront of elect 80s synth pop right because a lot of the a lot of the technology that you know keyboards and the things that let you make that kind of music are coming out of japan so there's some big Japanese artists that some we have a bit of a handle on in the West, like Yellow Magic Orchestra, but others um, we don't really. But there's this whole infrastructure of Japanese music doing what lots of Western artists did a little bit later, but the, the language barrier means that they didn't make a huge splash. But the style of music they were making is, is really similar in many ways. Uh, and I think, yeah, having, having access to the technology just gives you a, a different set of opportunities. Uh, yeah, for sure. Um, yeah, I've, uh, I haven't delved into a lot of Japanese music. Um, my only recommendations on that front will be things inspired by video games and film. Mm. So if I were to give you two composers to go and jam on Spotify to right now, uh, I would give you Joe Hisashi, who wrote lots of the music for all the famous Studio Ghibli films. Yeah. Uh, just beautiful piano pieces. And then uh, as a companion who performs in a similar style, uh, Nobu Uematsu, who wrote pretty much all the music for the renowned Final Fantasy games. Ones for Final Fantasy 7, 8, 9, a kind of masterpiece soundtracks i would say but they just happen to be for a video game um so just incredible beautiful music um nice. but i don't i unfortunately unfortunately i'm not on the cutting edge like you george so in the world of a uh, uh, j-pop or japanese jazz things like that i'm i'm kind of in the dark oh so i would say cutting edge i'm certainly in the dark as well but something i got my hands on a couple of weeks ago as a bit of a primer for when we go is uh, an album that was issued on a uh, American label earlier this year and it's called Pacific Breeze and it's a collection of 80s, well late 70s and early 80s Japanese um, pop singles and album cuts in a style that I think in Japan is called City Pop and it's 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 like the Vice City GTA soundtrack you know, it's that kind of thing, lots of synth lots of nice guitar lines, super pristine production um, if if anyone listens to a band like Steely Dan, it's certainly cut from that cloth. High, high level production, clean, but really fun and really engaging pop music. And I was surprised that maybe half of them are, are sung in English or at least the chorus or aspects of the song are sung in English. So it's quite accessible. And it's the sort of music that, that would really fit in with our contemporary love of retro culture, you know, and at the moment that, uh, like real harking back to 80s and 90s aesthetics this would really fit if this was played in urban outfitters no one would be disappointed it's that kind of thing you know it's it's waiting for a, a hipster takeover um but there's also uh the i guess the grounding for another thing we've talked about on here that vapor wave kind of music definitely stems from this so there's there's bits and pieces of it that 
I think everyone would recognize, but the songs in of themselves are quite alien to us. So it's been really nice to yeah, get a handle on what, what Japanese pop music was and the directions it's pushed forward from as well. Hmm. Uh, cracking stuff. Well, you have to shoot me some links over so I can rock out to them on the plane to Narita Airport. For sure. Well, the album's called Pacific Breeze. It's probably Pacific streamable Breeze. in a number of places. Um, all right, lovely. Um, well, we've covered the gamut of Japanese culture. Um, mm-hmm. shall, we, uh, shall we wrap up there for now and, and continue this on our sojourn to Tokyo? I think so, yeah. We'll, um, we'll do this from the top of a skyscraper. I think we should do it from in a, in a little ramen restaurant. Mm-hmm. We should, you know, we should just pop, pop the mic down on a mat and just get comfy and talk from Japan. I'll be the Scarlett Johansson to your Bill Murray. <laughs> that, I mean, I get to sing more than this to you in karaoke. Hopefully. Um, all right, lovely. Well, this this cut out this episode a few times, so let's hope you wouldn't I'd, know it, though, would you? Listening to this, slick, slick as done, anything. Let's hope I've done a bang up editing job on this before <laughs> it comes out. Um, thanks for listening, everyone. Uh, we'll be back real soon. Cheers, guys. Thank you. Bye, bye. <laughs>